0: So I just want to make that clear to our visitors, our newer people amongst us, what you would typically get here is a diet of the Bible in looking at texts, making our way through books of Scripture. With respect to this particular series, friends, I at least don't intend for this to be your typical marriage sermon series. I aim to consider what I would call high-level Bible realities that affect everything underneath them, and I am not planning maybe at all to go to any of the particular marriage passages in Scripture that you would typically think of. Genesis 2, Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3. I'll probably reference them from time to time, but those texts will at best be on the periphery of what we're considering. We're going to be looking at much more kind of high-level foundational stuff from God's Word. And I also want to say this. I realize that some in the room are married. Some in the room are not married. We have a mixed bag here of people, as is to be expected, And I want to be really clear, especially to those in the room who are not married, the vast majority of this content in this series will be extremely applicable to you and every relationship that you have in your life. So certainly even for the married people, as we're thinking about how these things pertain to our marriage, we can also be thinking about how does sin affect, like today, how does sin affect every relationship that I have? And how should I be thinking about these things biblically? So in other words, this sermon series is for everyone. So listen that way. I want to just sort of truth and advertising, give a couple of disclaimers here. So disclaimer number one, before we do anything else. I have not arrived in my marriage. I don't think that shocks anyone. Nobody fell out of their chairs. That's good. I certainly have much to learn uh, with respect to marriage. And I, in these sermons, will be preaching better sermons than I live. It's important that you understand that. I am with you in the fight. This is not at all, hey, you need to be where I am. No. This is we need to keep trusting Christ and relying upon the Spirit of God to change us and change our relationships. That's what this is. If I could only preach, we'll take this series in particular. This is true of any sermon that I would ever preach. But with respect to these marriage sermons, if I could only preach what I feel like I have a really good handle on, this would be an absolutely horrible sermon series. You may as well leave now because there would not be a lot to say. Disclaimer number two. So That was number one. Disclaimer number two. These subjects obviously are vast. They're deep. They're huge. And so there will be plenty of really good and helpful things that I will not have time to say. So these four sermons in no way should be understood as comprehensive or exhaustive, even with respect to the particular topics that I'll be covering each week. Sort of continuing on by way of introduction here, friends. This is not a typical introduction either, and that's okay. I want to give a word of pastoral instruction. So this is kind of like the caution thing, on the the label on the new tool you get, or whatever. Listen for you. Listen for yourself in these sermons. Don't, in other words, listen for someone else. Listen for you. Do not, in particular, to the married people, wives, don't listen for your husbands. Listen for yourself. Husbands, don't listen for your wives. Listen for yourself. Single folks, don't listen for other members of CBC. Right? Don't listen for family members or friends that you know. Listen for yourself. And I would say, in fact, that the tendency to listen to sermons anytime, but even sermons like this maybe in particular, and immediately be thinking about how this content is nailing it to my spouse, that is indicative of a lot of the problems, the root problems that we have in our marriages to begin with. right? So, I have hopes for this sermon series. There was a reason that we as elders decided to do this. I have hopes that I want to try to illustrate with a, a brief story, a brief illustration. So there was, this is a hypothetical situation. This is like one of those movie disclaimers, right? This is not based on real people or events, okay? So I have no one in mind here. But there was a young man, recently engaged, feeling called to ministry. And so the summer after he graduates from college, he and his new Fiance, they go to work for the summer at a Christian camp. Going to get some real-life ministry experience for a couple of months. And upon arriving at the camp, he meets an older man, older brother in the faith, who is going to be working alongside him at the camp. He learns pretty quickly and getting to know this man that this man is divorced. And so there is immediately in this young, pretty self-righteous young dude, there's welling up kind of judgment in his heart, He's assessing this guy, and he's acting towards him in ways that the older man perceives. He knows what's going on, right? My divorce is an issue here. As the summer goes on, the two guys finally arrive at a point of a direct conversation, and the older man tells the younger man about how much he learned in his failed marriage. He tells him about everything that he learned about himself, everything that he learned about sin and its effects on him and about sin and its effects on the world and how that affected his marriage. And he talked about how much he learned about love and grace and charity and forgiveness. And then he said to the younger man, the hope for you, young man, is that you would have your second marriage with your first wife. And so the point, that's that's the point, that's the hope, right? With a series like this, is that as we consider God's truth, these foundational biblical realities of sin and grace, that our thinking would be recalibrated, that we would be helped to think better about our marriages and our relationships, that we would approach them in a more biblical, healthy, gospel-driven, grace-driven way. That's the hope and that's my prayer for the next several weeks. So I have a five-point sermon for us today. Five points. I will be referencing various passages in Scripture. I'll try to be clear about those. I would encourage you to just jot those passages down, the references, and you can go back and even spend time this afternoon or this week looking at them. Because I will not read many of them. I'll be referencing the content of them. So point number one, friends, I hope this is a logical progression for you for the rest of our time today. Point number one, we're going to consider the truth about the world. The truth about the world. In Genesis chapter 3, in particular verses 16 to 19, we read about God's curse that came upon humanity, yes, but the entire creation along with it. We do hear about difficulty in childbearing and also childrearing, certainly. We see relational strife predicted between man and wife will be Coming back to those things more in a moment. But we also see a curse on the earth, a curse on the ground. Where the ground will now bring forth thorns and thistles. And labor will become toilsome for the children of Adam as a result of the fall. We read in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 about the vanity and the futility of life on earth in a fallen world. The words of Solomon are very gripping and provocative. Everything is meaningless. It's futile. We feel that futility every day. And then also, friends, in Romans 8, verses 20 to 22, Paul uses very strong language about what happened to the entire creation because of Adam and Eve's sin. He tells us there that the creation was subjected to futility. He also tells us that the creation is literally in bondage to corruption. The entire world is. And that the whole creation is groaning to be delivered from the curse that it is under. This is serious business. This won't come as a shock to anybody in the room, but we live in a world that is broken. We live in a world that does not work as God originally made it to work. That doesn't mean that what we have now is outside the bounds of God's sovereignty or providence at all. No, but it does not work. The way that God originally made it to work. The entire creation has been tragically corrupted and affected by the curse of sin. And so, this has tremendous implications for every relationship that we have, and it certainly has tremendous implications for our marriages. How so? Well, one thing to consider is that hardships and calamities are normal in a fallen world, hardships and calamities are normal. They are the rule, not the exception. To think, oh my gosh, like calamity and hardship just happens every now and then is utterly naive. It's happening all the time. We had a a brother in our congregation this week. His his father suddenly passed away. He's not with us this morning. No idea that was going to happen. People we love die. Jobs are lost. Financial difficulty is encountered. Children are born with disability, people have sickness, even acute sickness that they must deal with that they didn't sign up for. I could go on. Don't think that those kinds of things don't put stress on your marriage. They do. They do. Well, how else does this brokenness of the world affect our marriages? In addition to the hardships and calamities piece, there's just the regular, ongoing, real, circumstantial trials that we all face the inability to have children or maybe the challenges of babies and small children especially when you have a lot of them or hard work along with a lack of income you're busting your backside but you're not able to make a good living you're toiling in vain perhaps you deal with chronic pain don't think that those things do not put stress on your marriage they do they put stress on all of your relationships In addition, friends, there is not only the calamity piece that we've got to deal with and the ongoing circumstantial trials, but let's be real. There is wickedness in the world. Sin and temptation are everywhere. You know that and I know that. Gross immorality is at our fingertips all the time. Gross immorality is a click away all the time. Don't tell me that that doesn't present a problem in marriage. Injustice and animosity and hatred run through the streets of every society, and we are affected, all of us. Don't think that those things don't put stress on your marriage, on your relationships. They do. So, friends, as Christians, we need, you'll hear me say this a lot today, we need to remember our theology. Remember your theology when you approach your marriage. The first piece of that is that I live in a world that's broken. And as a result of that, there's going to be stress and strain and heartbreak and heartache and hardship on the regular. And that will certainly affect my relationships. It certainly will affect my marriage. How could it not, right? Which brings us to point number two. Point number one was the truth about the world. Point number two is the truth about us. The truth about us. By us, of course, I mean men and women human beings, sons and daughters of Adam. Again, in Genesis chapter 3 and 4, we read about not only the difficulty in childbearing and childrearing and the relational strife that's predicted even between man and wife, but we see human beings in a state of rebellion against God, going our own way. It's what we do as fallen human beings. We see, though, as a result of that rebellion shame and guilt and corruption of every kind enter the world and enter the human race. We were plunged into ruin, into into moral disaster. The relational strife that arises as a result of the fall of man is illustrated quite powerfully in the chapter following, the chapter that describes the fall. Genesis 3, the fall of man. What happens in Genesis chapter 4? Cain kills his brother Abel. You think it's not bad what happened to us? You've got a brother killing his brother in not that many years after the fall occurred. In Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, there are these absolutely horrifying words. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's not a very flattering picture of you or me. We want, with everything in us, to deny that that's true, but friends, it's true. We have been corrupted in every part of us. Jeremiah 17:9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Answer, nobody on earth. God does, but we don't. We don't. You know this. You don't even understand the motivations of your own heart often. We have a heart problem that affects everything else in our lives. And then Romans chapter 3, which was read to us earlier, we have to consider it. Paul is referencing there a number of the Psalms. Psalm 5, 14, 36, 53, 140, along with Proverbs 1 and Isaiah 59. He's quoting Bible in Romans chapter 3, verse 9 and following, where he tells us that none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands and no one seeks after God. We have all turned aside from righteousness. We have all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Our throats are open grades. We use our tongues to deceive. The venom of vipers is under our lips, and our mouths are full of curses and bitterness. We are quick to shed blood. Ruin and misery are in our paths, and we don't know the way of peace. And there is no fear of God in our eyes. Friends, that is the truth about us, naturally. When we are born, in and of our natural human nature, that is a description of us. We don't want to acknowledge that it's true, but it's true, every one of us. We're fallen, by nature we are corrupt, and we have inherited all of this from our first parents. And so, when we start to think about relationships, and we start to think about marriage, we have to come to grips with this reality that every one of us brings something very dangerous and very harmful into our marriages. And that something that we all bring is called sin. Sin is destructive at its core. It is dangerous at its core, and it brings nothing but wreckage and disaster. You see, we are all in a state of sin, a condition of sin, right? We've talked about this a lot. Before sin is ever an action... Before it's ever a deed that's done, or a thought that's, thought or thunk, however you say that, right? A feeling that's felt. Before it's any of that, sin is a state. It is a condition into which we are all born. We sin because we're sinners, not the other way around. We're not sinners because we sin. So friends, as a result of sin, we are utterly selfish and self-absorbed. Real talk, right? Do you feel good about yourself yet? I hope so. I feel good about myself, absolutely. We are utterly selfish and self absorbed. We are all about us. We are all about what we want. We tend to do us, as the language is these days just do you, right? That's what we do naturally. And we feel entitled and justified to do us, regardless of how it might affect anyone else. That's our natural disposition. Now, certainly because of our selfish motivations, we learn how to work it. We learn how to manipulate and use people. Of course, that's true. We learn how to be nice when it benefits us. We learn how to be kind and loving when it benefits us. But we are self-interested at the core. Again, I'm talking about the state of sin now, to be clear. As a result of sin, we are all rebellious. We go our own way. We reject authority, whether that's God's or anyone else's. And we do what seems good in our own eyes. As a result of sin, we are destructive. I don't know if you've thought about that. We were made to cultivate. What does God tell Adam and Eve in the garden? He tells Adam in particular to cultivate the earth. Fill it, subdue it. We were made to cultivate, yet our natural tendency is to destroy. That's true in a lot of ways, but it's certainly true in relationships. Naturally, what do we do to other people in relationships? Naturally, we hurt other people. It's as easy as breathing to hurt others. We lash out in anger and frustration. We harbor animosity and bitterness and hatred even towards others. We find satisfaction to our shame. We find satisfaction in wounding other people. Especially when we are feeling pain ourselves. We feel satisfied and justified that others would hurt too. And friends, because of sin, we also have wicked desires. Everyone in this room, you've had wicked desires this morning. Some of them you may have followed through with, some of them maybe not, but you've had them. We want things that are wrong. Period. In a Genesis 3 world, meaning in a fallen world, The way things are is no longer the way things ought to be. Just because you want something and desire it naturally does not mean it's good. Not anymore. And so, we have desires that are bad, that are objectively wrong, according to God's Word. We have twisted notions and desires with respect to sex or possessions or leisure or relationships and how I am going to be fulfilled The way we are as a result of sin is not the way we should be. I could go on. I could talk all day about the effects of sin in your life, your lives, I should say, and in my life. These things are true of you, and they're true of your spouse. They're true of anyone that you could ever have a relationship with. No exception. How could your marriage, honest question, how could your marriage not be affected by this reality? By the fact that you are a sinner, like I just described, and you're married to a sinner, like I just described. Marriages are tremendously affected by the fallenness, the truth about us. Which brings us now to point number three. Point number one, the truth about the world. Point number two, the truth about us. Now, point number three is a qualifier. It's a qualifying point, and I'm just calling it the dominion of sin versus the presence of sin. The dominion of sin versus the presence of sin for the believer. So this is sort of my caveat to point number two, right? Romans chapter six, this will be brief, describes our new existence in Christ Jesus. We've been considering these things a lot lately, from the letter to the Galatians. We have been united to Jesus through faith. We have died to the law through Him and therefore have really been set free from the dominion of sin. So it no longer reigns over us. It is now possible for us not to sin. Romans 8 and verse 9. We learn that the Spirit of God quite literally dwells inside of us. Something has changed. The new birth has happened. We have the Spirit of God now in a way that we did not before. And then in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 and following, and also in Galatians five seventeen, we learn that while regeneration is true and the transformed life is real and we have been set free from the dominion of sin and it doesn't reign over us anymore, the presence of sin, though, still remains in all of us. We confessed that earlier. Sin wages war against us, against our spirit and the spirit of God inside of us. We've thought about this recently. There's now an internal conflict that's real. There's an internal war and a struggle that is hard. Remember Paul's words in Romans chapter 7. We can't hear this enough. Paul talks about not doing the good things that he wants to do. And when he says, I want to do them, he's talking about his spirit. He's talking about the regenerate part of him and the spirit of God in him. I want to do good, but I don't find myself doing that good. And then there is evil that I don't want to do, again, because I'm regenerate. I'm born again now. I really don't want to sin. And yet I find myself sinning. And then he says that it is sin who dwells in him or sin that lives in him that keeps him from doing what he wants to do. It is sin that is in me that keeps me from my spirit, it keeps my spirit from doing what I want to do which leads him to exclaim, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. So friends, just very directly, for our purposes, that reality That internal war reality, continuing to do the evil that you don't want to do, not doing the good that you want to do, even in the church, that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with that amongst born-again people. Paul is not, in Romans 7, talking about his pre-Christian life. He is not, in Romans 7, talking about some hypothetical Gentile person. He's talking about himself and his experience as a spirit-indwelt Christian. So we're dealing with that. We're dealing with born-again people who still struggle with sin. Remember your theology, right? The world is fallen. You are fallen. The internal struggle is real. And in light of that, point number four. Point number four. Realistic expectations. Realistic expectations. I'm talking, of course, realistic expectations for your marriage. And before I say anything else about this, I want to be really clear that as I'm describing the way things are in our lives, in our world, this in no way is me saying that this is okay. It's not okay to sin. It's not okay to have wrong desires. It's normal, but it's not okay. You understand the difference, right? Okay. So, number four, realistic expectations. We must take seriously what the Bible says about us and the world we live in if we are going to have any chance of thinking well about marriage and that unique relationship, the crucible that it is. God, friends, has told us these truths in His Word because He loves us. He has told us about the world and about ourselves because He wants us to be prepared. My goodness, he wants us to know what we're up against. He wants us to know the truth. So an encouragement to you and to me, to all of us, is that we cannot turn a blind eye to what's true of every human being and think that our marriages will go well. Or any relationship that we ever have will go well. We can't think, because this is our tendency, right? We can't think that we... My spouse and I somehow will not have the problems that everyone else has. To think that is utterly naive and absurd. You are self-deceived if you think that you will be exempt from these kinds of struggles and these kinds of hardships. And it will, friend, whether you realize it or not, it will set you up for disaster in your marriage. So I want to just give you a fundamental truth that I trust will shock no one. Everybody's sitting down anyway, so we're good. You are a sinner married to a sinner. You are a sinner married to a sinner. So both you and your spouse deal every day, every day, every hour, every moment, you deal with the presence of sin. You will each have struggles and weaknesses that are common to all of us. Right? True. And you will each have particular unique struggles as well. You'll have weaknesses and particular patterns of sin that maybe your spouse doesn't have. Maybe that not everybody has, but some do. You have it. You will have, as husband and wife, you will have bins in your frame. Not all of them will be the same, though. And so, both you and your spouse along with the presence of sin, therefore, because of that, you and your spouse every day, every hour, every moment are in desperate need of the grace of God. Our tendency is to think that we're doing pretty well. Now, I trust most in this church, if not all in this church, I'm just going to say this very quickly. I don't know that anybody in here is thinking that you're doing well with respect to your righteousness before God. I trust most are honest about that and that, yeah, I've got to have Jesus for that. I'm assuming that's true. But I think where we can really get skewed is when we start to think about living out the gospel, right? Like living in light of the gospel and the things that we know are good for us to be doing, bad for us to avoid, Christian life stuff. I think that's where we can tend to think we're doing much better than we are. We tend to think that we're just kind of doing this ourselves we sort of lose sight of our desperate need for grace we lose sight of the fact that any growth any progress any maturity in us is completely and only a result of the spirit of god working in us so we can tend to be very proud and self-righteous and think well of ourselves with respect to our growth and our maturation even while confessing that we need christ desperately for our justification. Neither you nor your spouse have been completely sanctified yet. It's important. Neither of you have been completely sanctified yet. There is work to be done. There is grace that you desperately need. And God, of course, is faithful to give it. But because of our daily struggle with sin and our daily need for grace, I want to give two exhortations. Give them to you one at a time. Exhortation number one. In light of your daily struggle with sin and in light of your daily need for God's grace, number one, you should not be surprised when your spouse sins. Again, nobody's falling out of their chair, right? You should not be surprised when your spouse sins against you. And you're thinking, duh, bro. Yeah, of course, no kidding. Like, why do we need to pay you to tell us that, Right? But let's be real for a minute. How often are you, how often am I, just absolutely shocked and offended when my spouse sins against me or your spouse sins against you? We act just absolutely, we're offended to the high heavens and we're shocked. Like, how could you do that? That's our response. Paul Tripp, the the guy who wrote the book that I'm referencing and some of his marriage material, it's great. I'm just going to almost quote him verbatim because it's said so well. He's talking about this kind of thing and he says, you know, you you get people that say this. I never thought that I would marry someone who would do that to me. To which he says, why not? You're a sinner, right? Think like that. I never thought that I would marry someone who would say that to me. Why not? You're a sinner too. You've done and said things that you never thought you would do. You've done and said things that You, in one sense, don't want to do. So that's the first exhortation. Do not be surprised when your spouse sins, even sins horribly against you. Second exhortation. In light of your daily struggle, my daily struggle with sin, and our daily need for the grace of God, number two, you must be more mindful of and concerned with your own sin than the sin of your spouse. Let me say that again. You must be more mindful of and concerned with your own sin than the sin of your spouse. There is not a counseling session that I leave, Ron leaves, Joshua leaves in which we're dealing with marital or relational conflict that I, we, don't come away saying this would be so much better if they were more mindful of their own sin than they were the sin of their spouse. No exception. This is a disease that we all have. We don't think well about this. Every married person in the room owned this reality. Own this. Your marriage is hard because you are in it. Your marriage is hard because you are in it. Am I saying that you are the only reason your marriage is hard? Of course not. Of course not. But your sin is a significant reason for the struggles in your marriage. No argument. Concern yourself with your sin. Deal. Take Jesus seriously. Deal with the log that is in your own eye before you go grabbing at the speck that's in your spouse's eye. It's not that you can't ever say anything to your spouse about his or her sin. Of course, you need to. But you're doing it from a position of knowing and owning and being realistic about your own wickedness and your own sin. I say all of this, friends, because it's not what we do naturally, right? It's not how we think at all we tend to think that the problems in our marriages or the problems in our relationships are at least largely to do with the other person. Now, you wouldn't say that to me, like if I was meeting with you or Ron was meeting with you. You probably wouldn't say that, at least not in session one, right? And because it's just like you wouldn't say that, yeah, I think that she's the problem or I think that he's the problem because you know it sounds bad. But deep down... We wrestle with that. We tend to think that a lot of the problems that I have in my marriage are a result of him or a result of her, not a result of me. We tend to be friends, let's just be real, self-righteous and others condemning. You've heard me say that. Self-righteous and others condemning. We especially tend to be obnoxiously self-righteous with respect to sins that we don't struggle with. It's so easy to do. You don't get it. You don't empathize. It's not hard for you. And you tend to be, just like I do, over the top self-righteous about that. Or the other category of sin that we tend to be just obnoxiously self-righteous about are the categories of sin. It's like, well, I used to struggle with that, but I have victory over that now. So if you would just do like me, you would have victory too. Right? That's how we tend to act. Not knowing, oh my goodness, it was the grace of God in me that gave me growth, that has changed me. And if it's not for the grace of God, I would plunge headlong back into that ruin. We also, just in light of my encouragement to you, be more mindful of your own sin than the sin of your spouse. Be more concerned with your own sin than the sin of your spouse. I say that because we are also very lenient with ourselves and we are very hard on our spouse's. We are lenient on ourselves and we are hard on other people by default. We give ourselves a pass with respect to our own particular sins while withholding forgiveness toward our spouses for theirs. It's like, yeah, I, I'm empathetic. I'm, I'm sympathetic to me, right? Like, I know how hard it is. I know that I'm fighting. I, I know the truth and... I know that the struggle is real, but then we don't extend that same kind of charity and compassion and sympathy to our spouse in the same kind of battle against sin. We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, while at the same time never or rarely doing that for our husband or our wife. We tend to take things personally that aren't personal Right? We take things personally and often assume poor motivations in our spouses. That's an exhortation in and of itself. Assume good motivations in your husband or wife. Assume good things in your brothers and sisters in the faith. Don't assume that there are poor, wicked, sinister motives underneath the surface. So friends, lastly, before we transition to our last point, consider this. If you are married... You will be more familiar with your spouse's sin than anyone else in the world. And the same is true in reverse. Your spouse will be more familiar with your sin than anyone else in the world. This is because all of the darkness and the wickedness that's in you that you hide from everyone else that you don't live with all the time it comes out in marriage. It's exposed. We're a few of us were talking before the, the service. It's important that we always remember this reality, that circumstances do not produce wickedness in our hearts. Circumstances reveal the wickedness that's there, right? Marriage is a unique relationship, and the circumstances of it often reveal serious heart problems that are there. They don't make them. They don't produce them. But the awesome thing, because we serve a God of mercy and a God who is gracious and a God who has saved us and is changing us, is that the fact that our sin is so exposed in marriage is a good thing. It's a good thing. Because God has good purposes for you. And he has good purposes for me. In our marriage, even with respect to that issue, he intends to work on our sin. He intends to change us, which brings us to point number five. Point number five. So if number four is realistic expectations. Number five is real hope. Number five is real hope. We rejoice here at CBC in what I would like to call the objective realities of the gospel. The gospel is not something that you do. It is something that has been done by Jesus. Praise God that's true. Because if the gospel is something that you've got to do or I've got to do in any measure, we may as well leave now. We've got no shot. So we rejoice in the objective accomplishments of the Lord Jesus Christ in fulfilling all righteousness, living a perfect life under the law, that that perfect righteousness would be counted to us by faith in Christ. We rejoice in the objective reality that was accomplished at the cross where Christ gave himself as the perfect sinless sacrifice to die the death that lawbreakers deserve so that that penalty is completely paid and it's objectively finished. We rejoice in that reality so that the penalty that we deserve, Christ took it. And that death he died is counted to us by faith. We rejoice in the objective reality of Christ's resurrection. That He has dealt the death blow to death and sin and Satan. And we know that through faith in Christ, we too will be resurrected to live forever with God. We rejoice in those things. And it is that gospel of justification, being declared righteous, being reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ that must inform every area of our lives. Certainly that's true, of our marriages. So we go into this whole conversation about how sinful we are, knowing those things are true. Therefore, there is nothing to fear. If your sin is being exposed all day long in your marriage, there is nothing to be afraid of. In that, you know that there is not a sin that could ever exist in you, that could ever be exposed in your marriage, that has not been dealt with in full by Jesus Christ. There is comfort in that reality. When you suddenly find yourself doing something that you never thought you would do, you might be surprised, Christ is not. He died for that. He fulfilled righteousness for you to cover that. And you are good with God because of Christ. You could never take away from His righteousness. And you certainly could never add anything to it. There is comfort in those realities, in those objective realities of the gospel. What the gospel allows, friends, is for us to stare in the face our sin. The reality, the real picture of who I am and who you are. We can look at that and not celebrate it, not condone it we can be honest about it because of Christ and then we can rejoice in the fact that God has promised to not leave us where we are. We are a come-as-you-are kind of church. We're a come-as-you-are kind of people and by God's grace, we don't stay where we are because by His Spirit, He changes us. So the reason that our sin, being so exposed in marriage is a good thing, is because, obviously, there's no fear, but it's also because God has promised to change us. He has changed, promised to sanctify you and me. He has promised to complete the good work that He started. That's Philippians 1.6. My favorite benediction text, maybe, He has promised to sanctify us completely and keep us blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. First Thessalonians 5.22-23. So this is massively important, what I'm about to say. For those who are married in the room, God intends to use us in the lives of our husbands and wives as instruments of His grace. God intends to use us in the lives of our husbands and wives as instruments of His grace. He means to use us as instruments in the lives of others, in general, for everybody in the room, to bring about their sanctification. You are being used of God to transform other believers. That's certainly true in your marriage. Also really important is this. If we do not live with the constant awareness of the struggle with sin that we've been thinking about, right? And if we don't live in constant awareness of our desperate need for grace, which we've been thinking about, then we will miss all kinds of opportunities to be used of God in the lives of our spouses. So if we're not living in constant awareness of the struggle with sin, our desperate need for grace, we're going to miss all kinds of opportunities to be used of God in the lives of our husbands and our wives. Or in the lives of others in general. In this church. That's because... If we're not living in light of the struggle with sin, if we're not living in light of our desperate need of the grace of God, we're going to make everything personal. Everything's personal. I'm personally offended by every sin that's ever committed against me. If we're not living in light of those realities, we will tend to be antagonistic about everything. We will tend to be adversarial in the ways that we respond to other believers and certainly to our spouses in marriage. Rather than it being as it should be, rather than it being a me for you kind of reality in marriage, it becomes this kind of me against you. We're striving against each other when we're not living in light of these realities, the struggle of sin, struggle with sin, and our need for grace. This is tethered to the fact that we will inevitably, if we're not living in light of those realities, be proud and self-righteous. We will be self-justifying, always, Whenever our spouse comes to us and says, hey, this is not going well or this is really hard for me, our immediate response, the temperature rises, the blood pressure is up, and it's like, well, let me tell you how you're wrong and I'm right. It's like I've done this before, right? We will tend, if we're not living in light of that struggle with sin and need for grace stuff, we will tend... To be proud and self righteous rather than being humble and charitable. And as a result, what we will tend to do is bludgeon our spouse to death. And we will be a very difficult person to live with. We will be unapproachable. Because, friends, the gospel, the objective realities of what Jesus has accomplished and how much you need that, the daily struggle with sin, our desperate need for grace, those things promote charity. They promote compassion. They cultivate, in particular, compassion towards the weaknesses of your spouse. Rather than you just being ticked off and frustrated all the time because he's weak this way or she is weak this way and it's getting old, it's driving me crazy, there will actually be some tenderness there. Like, I know that she didn't sign up for that, I know that she didn't ask for that particular struggle. She has found righteousness in Christ and she has found grace in God just like me. I know I've got these horrible, jagged edges of my personality too. I've got these bends in my frame that make her life really hard too. And because of the grace and the forgiveness that I've known in Christ from God, I'm going to be compassionate towards my spouse as a fellow sinner, as a fellow struggler. Brothers and sisters, your marriage, or any relationship for that matter, is not, hear me say this, is not the paradise you long for. I know when I I was single and people would say that, I would just kind of roll my eyes out of my head, because I was just like, whatever, you know, I, I can't wait to be married, and I was naive enough, I had decent theology, I think, and I was naive enough to think that I would somehow escape the problems that so many married couples have, like I talked about earlier. I was that young, naive, foolish person. Your marriage is not the paradise that you long for, and it will never be that. You need to come to terms with that. And that's not a slight to your spouse or even to you. It's just true. And it won't ever be that paradise that you long for because God has bigger plans for you. God has bigger plans and a greater design for you and me. He has justified you in His Son. He will glorify you to live with Him forever. He is sanctifying you, and He's doing that in a big way through your spouse. And what's also pretty cool is that He is sanctifying your spouse in a big way through you. Remember your theology. So the question is, won't you be an instrument of God's grace in the life of your husband, in the life of your wife? Single people, won't you be an instrument of God's grace in the lives of others? May it be so of all of us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, even just considering some of these truths makes us aware of how needy we are. We need your grace certainly because of our sin and we need your grace to continue to change us that we might love our husbands and wives well, that we might love others well, because we don't do that naturally. We pray that you would continue to renew our minds by your spirit through your word. And we pray that as you change us from the inside out, that we would be used of you in our marriages to sanctify our spouses. We pray, God, that we would live always in light of the real struggle that we all have with sin and in light of our desperate need for your grace. We pray that we would be humble and charitable and sympathetic and loving and kind and gentle as a result of our understanding of how gracious and merciful you've been to us. God, we pray for the rest of this series that it would be helpful. I have no confidence as a preacher that it will be unless you do that work. And I pray that you would. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.